So this morning, I want to continue with uh, a series of talks that I've been giving actually since last year, since I think the beginning of last year. And this is uh, a series that I call From the Ordinary Mind to the Buddha Mind. That is how we move according to a number of parameters from the ordinary conditioned mind to awakening. And I've originally identified uh, 10 parameters for the series, 10 different dimensions of transformation. And I've given talks, I think, on seven or so out of the out of the 10. You know, so I've looked at, for example, the ordinary mind and our qualities of thinking. I've looked at the nature of the emotions and the heart. I've looked at the body, the nature of the sense of self, uh, the sense of time, which has been was very interesting to look at. Uh, the nature of our psychological conditioning and how that gets transformed. And in May, I gave three talks related to the transformation of reactivity, which is right at the heart of the uh, teachings of the Buddha. Interestingly, what was next up on my list was the transformation of social conditioning. Interesting in the light of current events. That was what I wanted to explore. And actually, I'm going to depart a little bit from the ordinary structure of the talks. And I think all of the previous talks, we have a lot of guidance from tradition. And so the usual structure of my talks was simple. I had three parts. The first part was to identify the nature of our ordinary minds, our ordinary conditioning, you know, related to reactivity or how we experience time or our sense of self and so forth. That was number one. Then number two was, as best we can, to get a sense of what the awakened mind, heart and body look like. What does awakening look like? You know, we can know that some from our own experience and some from the text, the tradition, our teachers, and so forth. And then thirdly, really maybe the most crucial question, how do we go from the ordinary conditioned mind to awakening according to this parameter? And so that's what we've looked at so far. And you'll see that the way I'm going to work with social conditions is going to be a little bit different. And in fact, what I want to uh, do today is particularly look at one dimension of social conditioning very much uh, what uh, on many people's minds in the United States and I think actually all over the world in the last weeks and that is uh, racism uh, the sense of race the sense of racism how that gets manifested internally how that gets manifested externally and so forth. So that's what I want to explore. Uh, so we want to 
what I'm going to do is to particularly look at how are we guided by Buddhist practice to be part of transforming racism, again, inside and outside. What other resources do we need? So that's what I'll be looking at. And what I'm going to be doing is naming five perspectives that can be, in a way, resources, supports, give us clarity on how to approach this, you know, in some ways, immense uh, topic, this immense social wound, social personal wound. Uh, that's, you know, some people have been talking about uh, the multiple pandemics. There's the virus. There's also racism. There's also climate, which not so many people are attending to. We have, of course, economic distress for many. So really in a very challenging situation. So I'm going to be giving five perspectives. The first three of them are more connected with how we see and understand racism and its transformation. And the last two are more about how we respond and act. And I want to, just at the beginning, really talk about a little bit about my own approach, attitude, and background, because this is uh, like I said, it's uh, it's an immense area. It's a very intense area. It's one that's often in when people talk about it, it's very charged. And so I wanted to just uh, give a little bit about my own approach and background. Um, you know, one is to have as much as I can some degree of humility about. Um, approaching this topic and connecting uh, response to different aspects of our practice. Also, the recognition that I may sometimes speak unwisely or say things which are unskillful. Maybe some of that will be corrected in the discussion. You know, I certainly have my own blind spots, as does everyone. We're all deeply influenced by our own uh, conditioning, you know, and I just want to also acknowledge my own individual standpoint, which is that of being, uh, what shall we say, an older uh, white male person, you know, racialized as white, uh, but also uh, of uh, Jewish ancestry. Uh, and so when I was first growing up, uh, Jewish people were not fully white. You know, one of the really interesting and fascinating things about studying the history of racism and whiteness, for example, is just how crazy it is. You know, and there's a whole book that came out about 20 years ago on how Jews became white people. Some, anyone know that book? Yeah. It's fascinating. It's basically, um, 
anyway, I, I could go into this for a while, but it's uh, I'll be I'll try to be brief here. But basically, Jews became fully white people between 1953 and 1965. And before that, there were questions. And so when I was growing up, I was treated often as an other. Some of you may have had that experience, um, you know, and it got to me. I often wanted to hide my own identity or to pretend that I was someone different. My name was perpetually misspelled uh, growing up. Um, you know, my father, uh, Simon, was actually not able to go to medical school because of quotas that were there for Jewish people. This was in the late 1940s. And some of you may know that there were quotas uh, very, very strongly enforced, for example, at Ivy League schools that lasted up until the early 1960s. And, uh, you know, in terms of the history of whiteness, which is really fascinating, there were two criteria. One was for immigration purposes, and there, uh, there are people were uh, most people of European background, all people of European background were seen as white. And that came from a 1790 law. But then there was also a social dimension where, as many of you know, many people were not seen as fully white. You can see cartoons from the 19th century about the Irish, uh, uh, likening them to uh, gorillas and more liking them to people of African descent. Something similar happened with Italians, people from Eastern Europe, um, including Jewish people from Eastern Europe. And um, I even found in researching this that at the beginning of the 20th century, people, and I, I found this, I think this took place probably much of the country, but I think it was in the Pacific Northwest, people of Swedish background were not seen as fully white. Did you know that? <laughs> people of Swedish background, imagine that. Now it's sort of, for, for some people, it's like the paradigm of whiteness with blonde hair and so forth, but they were suspect. It was more, you know, the Anglo-Saxons were the paradigmatic white people. So anyway, there's a, it's a very strange and bizarre history that when you look closely, it's really just weird, you know, like the immigration people for years couldn't be sure. They couldn't decide whether people from the Middle East were white or not, but they had to decide, right? So that's really, I mean, a little, I'm having a little bit of humor, of course, it's a lot of, a uh, lot, lot of suffering as well. So in any way, in any case, uh, that's, that's some of my own, my own background, it's quite, it's quite uh, mixed. And, um, and just to say also that in going into this whole territory, it's really important to have uh, uh, compassion, to have discussions as much as possible, avoid uh, what we sometimes call blaming and shaming. And um, it's not always easy to have discussions on this. And so to be willing to quote unquote make mistakes, to have uh, sort of empathy be something one leads with. So, um, so that being said, uh, five perspectives on the 
transformation of racism. The first is to remember that the Buddha did not permit the system of caste within the Sangha at his time, that there was a kind of critique of caste. And caste certainly has some parallels with racism. You know, many of you know that uh, those who formed the uh, Indian culture as we know it uh, were invaders. You know, the so-called Aryans came from the West, from the areas that we now call Iran, Turkey, that area. And they came as invaders into Northwest India. They were lighter skinned. They subjugated the native people in that area and increasingly took over all of what we now call call India. They instituted what we what came to be called a caste system in part to keep the native people in check. And so many of you know the caste system had four castes plus those who were so impure that they were not even in any caste. There was the caste of the Brahmins who were the religious officiants who uh, studied the sacred texts, did rituals and ceremonies, and were considered the most pure. There were the Satriyas, which who were the warriors who were supposed to be protective. The Buddha actually came from this caste. The third caste was the caste of the merchants, traders, we would say farmers, uh, those who cultivated uh, animals and so forth. That was the third caste. And the fourth caste were the, uh, the sudras, who were uh, generally those who were taken. In one text it said they were the ones who serve the other three upper castes. And they were generally the people who were in the native populations and were darker skinned. And so, uh, and then there was also the, the group called the untouchables who were seen as completely impure and the upper caste would try not even to be in their presence. So that's the scene when the Buddha is born in India. The Aryans have ruled for about a thousand years. And what the Buddha does, and this is significant and can be inspiring, the Buddha started a Sangha where he said, there is no caste system in my community. And he criticized the caste system. And he said that it is not by being born in a caste for example, being a Brahmin that one is pure, but rather by one's actions, by how one lives, that one is called a Brahmin. And this must have been uh, irritating to many of the Brahmins. 
I was thinking the Brahmin leaders probably did the equivalent of early morning tweets about this guy, Gautama Buddha, right? They did early morning tweets signaling their displeasure at what the Buddha was teaching because he was, there were, you know, he was teaching that there was nothing especially pure about being a Brahmin or being in any of the upper castes, but rather everything was determined on how one lived. Again, again, uh, caste was not brought in to the Sangha. Anyone could be a member of the community, become a monk or a nun. So that seems very, very significant and even revolutionary. And then thirdly, members of the Sangha, when they met members of other castes, were guided to treat everyone the same. You know, and again, there's some complexity about that one, but the guidance was not to recognize the caste assumptions. So that's, I think, significant for us for considering how to transform racism, that this occurred historically. And it's been said that this uh, really stayed as a model in India, that in the later traditions, the Mahayana and Vajrayana, many of the great teachers came from the lower caste or the um, or the even the untouchables. That if you look to some of the figures, for example, who were some of the great uh, Vajrayana teachers in India, uh, there's a uh, a grouping of them called the 84 Siddhas. And if you read their biographies, which which are accessible, you can see that some of them came from these the lower caste or even the untouchables and were often uh, dark skinned. So this was not an obstacle in terms of Buddhist practice. <clears throat> the Buddha also, just to note, was uh, did some things that were unusual also in regard to women. I'm not going to focus so much on uh, sort of uh, the Buddha's relationship to what we would call patriarchal structures. He did admit with some reluctance women into the Sangha as nuns. Uh, but I should say in um, both in terms of caste and also in terms of women, the Buddha was not a social reformer. He was not trying to change the society but he did change the, the, uh, his own community. So I'll come back to that because it, it, um, I'll come back to that really in the next, next section. <clears throat> so that's the first perspective that I think that is important, that the, uh, the Buddha did deeply question and not permit caste, which was a system connected with uh, subjugating really darker skinned people, although there wasn't any concept of race at that time. Race is a, a modern concept only coming from the last few hundred years. <clears throat> so the second perspective is that, and this is really again can guide us, it's that 
greed, hatred, and delusion, that which we in our practice seek to transform is not just institutional, or I'm sorry, not just individual, but also institutional. Really, really crucial point that greed, hatred, and delusion are not just qualities of the individual mind separate from the social world, but rather greed, hatred, and delusion get institutionalized in our various economic, judicial, political, social institutions, and they also, of course, affect the culture. So greed, hatred, and delusion get um, brought out in our social conditioning, and we all internalize this. So when we look to uh, racism, maybe I should maybe I should back up and uh, say that um, this is a really important point that one one of my colleagues, uh, David Loy has brought this out in a lot of his work. Uh, one of his books is called Money, Sex, War and Karma. And this is really pointing to the ways that greed, hatred, and delusion take on social forms. You know, one of the ways we see greed manifested is in the economic system. I think even yesterday I saw uh, a headline related to Wall Street in the local paper, which was talking and it made me think about something I saw a while ago when there was a downturn. It said that someone, uh, a trader said on Wall Street, we have two emotions. One, we have uh, greed and we have hate and we have fear. We have greed cycles and we have fear cycles. Right now we're in a fear cycle. And I saw that referred to. And there are aspects of the economic system we can see which institutionalize greed. You know that uh, in some sense we can never have too much and those earning can never have too much. And we have these incredible levels of wealth in the culture. And while large numbers of people don't even have enough, right? So there's a sense that uh, there can never be enough and also often that even for the population that we can never consume enough, that we have to keep on consuming. So there are aspects where greed gets institutionalized. And uh, David also points to how hatred gets, gets institutionalized. And I'll come to that in a moment. One of the ways, of course, is with racism, but it also can occur in relation to immigration, and I would say, and I think David, David says also in terms of, of militarism, that there are ways that hatred gets institutionalized and delusion can also get institutionalized, you know, through various uh, uh, social ideologies, sometimes through aspects of the media and education and so forth. And so it's important to, I think, to look at racism as the example of a kind of institutionalized ill will and hatred. And what I'll suggest a little bit later is that it's very, very connected, although not always obviously connected to greed and wanting, right? 
but it's helpful to see this, that, you know, when we look at racism, you know, I, I think of racism, as do many people, uh, as one of the core wounds of our country, and, a, and a, indeed of many countries, because we have people from more than one country here today. Uh, I think it was there was a book that uh, Jacob Needleman wrote in which he talked about, um, I think, it was, I think the book was something like about healing the soul of America. I forget the exact title. Maybe someone here knows. Um, but he talked about the two founding crimes of the U.S. And of course, that would be the, the near genocide of native people and the enslavement of people of African descent. And what's important is that those wounds have never really been healed. They've been addressed some, but they're right there. They're, they're the core right now open wounds that are calling for healing and transformation. You know, some would say that racism is the core social dukkha of the country. And it's clear that we can't really heal, uh, I would say individually or collectively, without getting at this, uh, this institutionalized wound, this institutionalized hatred. You know, the clearest manifestations of racism are on the uh, bodies of black people, you know, which we've seen recently, and of course, initially in slavery. Uh, slavery was only able to be maintained by, by extreme violence. And, you know, there is a, a kind of a legacy now, of course, of slavery, legacy that's still with us, uh, that comes, comes through the police and judicial systems. And so just to, we could take a lot of time going into the nature of this dukkha, this institutionalized dukkha, but I think many of you know uh, some of the realities that uh, uh, people of African descent die at a younger age, they're generally sicker and hungrier. They have a much higher rate of infant mortality, worse health care. Uh, they're incarcerated at five times the rate of white people. Uh, the median wealth of a black family is about one tenth of a white family. Um, the figures in 2016 were, I think, the average white family had a median wealth of $171,000. And for black households, it's $17,000, the median wealth of a black household. A lot of that is related to uh, owning a home. And many of you know that there were, there have been for, were for a lot of years, uh, massive discrimination. In fact, in the 1930s and 40s, some of the measures aiming to help people gain homes, which I think my family was able to get, were, were available on extremely reduced scale. Some of you know, like the GI Bill after World War II, uh, some of the social security measures in the 1930s were highly restricted for people of African descent. And that is part of why there's so much a, a wealth gap, you know, that these historical factors keep, keep going. Um, 
there's also, of course, intense uh, stress. You know, uh, research medical researchers um, looked at um, birth rates. This was a, these were studies done, and they when they looked at birth rates for babies, when they controlled for every factor, wealth, health of the mother, medical care, uh, black babies had a lower average birth rate. And the researchers concluded that the only factor which could make sense of this was that there was an, a much greater level of stress. So we could go on like this. I thought maybe I'll show uh, one reading. I'll do one reading. This is from James Baldwin. This is from 1961. We can show the slide, uh, Levi. To be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a state of rage almost, almost all the time and in one's work. And part of the rage is this. It only isn't only what is happening to you, but it's what's happening all around you and all the time in the face of the most extraordinary and criminal indifference, indifference of most white people in this country and their ignorance. That's that's James Baldwin. And we can we can let go of the slide. And of course, African-Americans are twice as likely to die from the virus. So we could go on like that. This is a kind of a, uh, a rupture in our uh, community. But what's important to see, I think, for the purposes of our practice, is that if we're committed to transform greed, hatred, and delusion, we have to see that it's all, it's not just in us, but it's out there. And of course, they're related. Uh, that, that institutionalized uh, hatred in this case is uh, what? Internalized by us, but also there in the institutions. So having that perspective can be very helpful. Greed, hatred, delusion, not just inner factors that we try to change, but uh, they're out there in the, in the institutions. And then, of course, part of our greed, hatred, and delusion is internalized by how the institutions work. Does that make some sense? And yet we don't have good resources for taking stock of this, that we don't have really a clear sense of the of the institutions and how we connect our Dharma practice to this fact. So here we can go, we'll go to the second slide. This is from uh, Gary Snyder, um, famous poet, white poet. We'll first see the quotation, then we'll have an image of him. This is also strangely from 1961, amazing. Historically, Buddhist philosophers have failed to analyze out the degree to which ignorance and suffering are caused or encouraged by social factors, considering fear and desire to be given facts of the human condition. Although Mahayana Buddhism has a grand vision of universal salvation, the actual achievement of Buddhism has been the development of practical systems of meditation towards the end of liberating a few dedicated individuals from psychological hangups and cultural conditionings. Institutional Buddhism has been conspicuously ready to accept or ignore the inequalities and tyrannies of whatever political system it found itself under. 
This can be death to Buddhism because it is death to any meaningful function of compassion. Wisdom without compassion feels no pain. The mercy of the West has been social revolution. The mercy of the East has been individual insight into the basic self void. We need both. They are both contained in the traditional three aspects of the Dharma path, wisdom or prajna, meditation, dhyana, and morality, sila. Wisdom is intuitive knowledge of the mind of love and clarity that lies beneath one's ego-driven anxieties and aggressions. Meditation is going to the, this mind to see this for yourself over and over again until it becomes the mind you live in. Morality is bringing it back out in the way you live through personal example and responsible action, ultimately towards the true community, the Rasanga of all beings. And let's see an image of Mr. Snyder as a young man and as uh, in recent times, still alive, uh, 89 years old, one of our great heroes, along with uh, James Baldwin and others. Thanks. We can go back now. So that need to combine the inner and the outer. Uh, the teacher, Angel Kyoto Williams, said it this way. She said, without inner change, there can be no outer change. Without collective change, no change matters. So that necessity of connecting inner and outer change. The third perspective. <clears throat> this is an interesting one and can I think can be very helpful. So this is that race is a construction that has no ultimate meaning. So I'll make some sense of this. So this is in Buddhist language, we can make use of the sometimes hard to understand term emptiness. I'm not going to say too much about this. But another way to talk about emptiness is to say that nothing, not a tree or a person or a concept, has any ultimate single reference point that's out there in the world because everything is continually changing and everything is in dynamic interrelation with everything. Another way to say this in simple English is that everything, including our sense of our own selves, is a construction. It's a kind of conceptual construction that we use to simplify and make sense of our experience. Constructions can be useful, but they don't have any ultimate reference point. And we can see this really clearly with the example of, of race. So some little bit of history, very, very interesting history. As I mentioned, the concept of race doesn't really start to be operative with much energy until the 1700s. <clears throat> the Oxford English Dictionary lists the first usage in print of the word white as happening in 1671. So 
We go back to the Virginia colonies, 17th century, middle of the 17th century. There are slaves, but they're not called black people, and there's no sense of race. Slavery is also, in the Virginia colonies, very fluid. People can stop being slaves. Slavery is not hereditary. People can stop being slaves, own property, buy houses. Sometimes they can make money and buy themselves out of slavery. At the same time that they're slaves, they're also indentured servants. A lot of them from England, most of them living lives that are not hugely different from the lives of the slaves there at that time. They mingle in their work. There's intermarriage. There's no sense of white and black. People are known by their nations of origin or their places of origin or their religion. The uh, people of African descent have largely come from the Caribbean and speak English. And so there are a lot of mingling, a lot of connection, some intermarriage. The system is not hardened. The, the Virginia colonies are ruled by wealthy planters, sort of a wealthy elite. There's a lot of dissatisfaction with the life of the slaves and the indentured servants. In 1676, there is a rebellion that takes place called Bacon's Rebellion. People of African descent, people of English descent, join together in the rebellion. They are part of the rebellion together against the wealthy elites. They actually go and they burn Jamestown. And the wealthy elites are very scared by this rebellion. And according to many historians, they decide that what they need to do is what we would call divide and conquer. And so they set in motion in the next very few years, what are, came to be called the slave laws, which starts to harden. They start calling people whites and blacks. They start using what we might call a framework of race, which hadn't existed in that society before. They do that seemingly explicitly to divide and conquer. Let's see, I have one historian. Let me see if I can find the quote. This is Edmund Morgan. He says, For the wealthy elites, those with eyes to see, there was an obvious lesson in the rebellion. Resentment of an alien race might be more powerful than resentment of an upper class. And so very, very soon, slavery becomes incredibly hardened 
becomes hereditary. They, the wealthy people, enlist the poor whites in slave patrols. They tell the white, the poor whites, you're better than these people. And they're successful. They do so with, with laws, with slave patrols, which later the slave patrols later turn into the police, you know, a century or more later. And we have that kind of divide and conquer. Now, I would maintain that that kind, that uh, race was, is a construction that was developed for the purposes of divide and conquer and has taken on, in a way, a life of its own. But I think that history is really, really important. It's not very hard to see that, the divide, that race is used nowadays, if we look at the last 50 years, also in a divide and conquer way for the purposes, especially of politicians who in large part cater to the wealthy. Does that make some sense? Look at, uh, look at the history. This is what is sometimes called dog whistle politics. After the 1960s, it was no longer socially permissible to be overtly racist. And so what happened were codes, you know, Richard Nixon talking about law and order. Ronald Reagan with the war on drugs. George Bush the first with the Willie Horton ad. Clinton talking about ending welfare as we know it. You know, and then very obvious with the current president, right? Uh, actually using language that is not apparently overtly racist, although sometimes it's very close or even goes into that, but trying to manipulate the scene and doing a kind of divide and conquer. One of the people who's really taken that in the current time in a very interesting way is a man named Ian Haney Lopez, who is a professor at UC Berkeley in the law school he wrote, a, he's written a few books. One of them was called Dog Whistle Politics. Another one is called Merge Left, uh, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections and Saving America. And his point is really that if we understand race as a kind of construction, I didn't add the point that virtually all biologists think that race has no meaning biologically, right? I think you, I think most people know that. But uh, Lopez really says that there's because the origins of racism are in a divide and conquer for economic gain, we might say, to that extent, we could say that a greed, institutionalized greed, is actually more significant than institutionalized hatred. That's where it comes from. And he says that that means that now, for now, there has to be, for to really get at this root, there has to be a fusing of economic justice and racial justice and a bringing together, essentially, he would say, of people who are poor and even middle class 
of all ethnicities to join together and to join together to to cut through racism. <clears throat> so that's my third perspective, that race is a construction. And that, again, that can lead to action. So I'm, I'm noticing the time, so I'm going to be brief. I think I'm not, I'm going to really condense my fourth and fifth perspective. The fourth perspective, and maybe I'll, I'll bring them out more next time. The fourth perspective is that when we take our ethics when we take our ethical commitment seriously to, which is part of the Eightfold Path, part of our practice, it is to not harm, not take that which is not given, and to be very careful in areas which are difficult, careful and wise with speech, sexuality, and substances which shift consciousness. And I would say that if we take our ethical commitment seriously and know that harm is not just what we do to ourselves or to people very close to us, but also what is done in our name in the society and to the extent that we're connected with social institutions is done through us, then our ethical commitment really causes us to end harm. A lot of Buddhist teachers have wanted to say that our ethics isn't just about our face-to-face -face behavior, but also about what's going on around us. And you can actually find passages in the teachings of the Buddha where he says something like that. He says in one text, do not kill, do not approve of others killing. Some of you know Thich Nhat Hanh has really followed that up. He says it this way, we cannot support any act of killing. No killing can be justified. But not to kill is not enough. We must also learn ways to prevent others from killing. We, not, we cannot say, I am not responsible. They did it. My hands are clean. If you were in Germany during the time of the Nazis, you could not say, they did it. I did not. And so one of the helpful ways to consider, I think, the ethical perspective is to ask, what would I have done if I was in Nazi Germany and was a Christian citizen? What would I have done in Mississippi as a white person in, in the 1960s? What would I have done in Mississippi or anywhere in the U.S. in the 1850s? I think those kind of reflections probably will tell us I would have wanted to act in some way. And then we can apply it to our present time. So that's the fourth perspective, which I'm doing very briefly here, that our ethical commitment impels us to respond. And then the last one, which I'm going to do very briefly, is how do we respond? And I think of Joanna Macy's three aspects of moving towards a good society, a just, sustainable society. First, prevent further damage from happening prevent harm from happening in the present. Secondly, shift the institutions. And thirdly, change consciousness. So again, I'll be very, very brief, sorry. But to apply this to transforming racism, the first would be the province of activism is to join in preventing harm from happening, responding from harm, responding to current harm. 
The second would be changing the institutions, which of course would mean the judiciary and of course the police, but also would mean our educational systems, our economics and other systems, um, medical system and so forth. And the third, it would be changing consciousness. And this could mean working with our own conditioning, you know, following the work of someone like Ruth King, her book, Mindful of Race, and going into ways to look at our own conditioning. There are a number of programs that one can be part of where you can do this with other people, whatever your ethnicity is, to find ways to, you know, best is if you do this over six months or a year and you are with a small group of people and you have uh, commonalities so you can really be honest and forthright and look deeply week to week or month to month and look at one's conditioning and learn how to transform it. Ruth King's book, Mindful of Race, is a good starting point if you want to do that. And I think I'll talk more about that next week because I wanted to give enough time for discussion. So sorry about being brief with the last two. I'll do more next time. But the again, the five perspectives are first, we can be inspired by the Buddha and his way of, of deeply questioning caste and not permitting it in his communities. Second, that greed, hatred, and delusion aren't just personal and individual, but they get institutionalized and, of course, internalized. Thirdly, that race is a construction, particularly motivated by greed and uh, economic uh, privilege, we might say, and it can be deconstructed. Fourth, that our ethical practice compels us to prevent harm, to address harm, basically. And then lastly, there are ways to practice uh, both collectively and individually. So let me stop there. And let me just ask maybe for a moment of quiet, just see what may have had impact for you, what may have been helpful, along with any uh, questions you might have or sharing uh, something from your own perspective. We'll take about a 30 seconds or a minute for this. So thank you. And We'll use the uh, raise hands function down at the bottom under participants to let me invite anyone who either has a question or something to, to share and Levi will help. And I think some of you may have also sent in questions via the chat functions. Yeah, uh, I see Jess did, uh, with your hand up, but uh, Levi, where are we? Um, no questions in the chat and no raised hands yet, but uh, the question from Jess that came in is about Buddhist programs um, that teach uh, anti-racism, in particular um, trying to teach a five-year-old son. Oh, yeah, yeah, thank you. And then I see Judith has raised hand. So um, wonderful question. There are a number of programs. Uh, 
Ruth King is one of the most active people. You can look up her website and there are a lot of resources on her website. She's very interested in helping to start uh, what she calls affinity groups of groups of four to seven. In fact, uh, she has a program that's starting in September, but I found out yesterday that the uh, she, she had room for 100 people. The response has been so overwhelming that there's no more room in the program. <laughs> so um, maybe she'll do something else, but very, but you can look at her website. You can also with uh, friends start your own program. There's uh, a curriculum that was developed by uh, a group of uh, people in the Spirit Rock Community Dharma Leaders Program called Wake Up, W-A-I-C dash up which has a very good curriculum that you could follow for six months uh, or, or more that is available online. Uh, uh, a third resource is the uh, website White Awake. This would be for people who've been racialized as white. And White Awake has a number of programs, some of which I think are starting very soon. So, uh, so a few programs that you could fit into. You could also do it on your own. Generally, it's more skillful when one's looking at uh, one's conditioning to be of uh, be with people of a similar ethnic background. That's generally more skillful. It helps with uh, you know the approach of uh, be you know just being very very honest, direct, and having as much as possible a no shame, no blame approach. Thank you, Jess. Judith, uh, raised hand. Hi. Well, you have to unmute, Judith. There you go. Okay. Good. Can you hear me? Yeah. Good. Um, so, um, my, uh, my question basically is about how to live in this world, in this life. And I live just a few blocks from you, Don, in Berkeley. Okay. Um, so, about, and I come from an old leftist from my family background from the 50s and have been activist in one way or another, but um, I've also been involved with Spirit Rock for many years before it was Spirit Rock even. And my question is about how to balance one's life and um, between the individual, the activism and being out in the world, uh, sorry, the individual personal transformation and change, and then sort of uh, being a householder, if you will. Yeah. Three different realms of um, being alive today in this particular time and place. Yeah, yeah. And it's, so um, how to divide your day or your week. And, and I'm at an age where I don't have kids pulling at me. I don't have a job pulling at yeah. me. So it's all in my lap about how to balance these. Yeah. Yeah, it's a wonderful question, important question. And um, what comes to mind are really two responses. The first is to really look deeply at what's calling you. To be really, really uh, honest. Sometimes that can happen doing, you know, maybe a, a day retreat or a retreat, but to be in touch with what's deeply calling you. You know, I think of the beautiful response from Howard Thurman, who was African-American 
minister, activist, mystic, who uh, near the end of his life answered the question of a young man, what should I do? And he, at that time, Thurman was connected with a lot of activist projects. His answer was not to say, oh, we really need people with this project. He says, this, listen to this for an activist responding. Don't ask what the world needs, but ask what makes you come alive, because what the world needs is people who have come alive. So that's the first response, to listen deeply for what's calling you. Then secondly, let's suppose that's what's calling you is I do want to respond to the state of the world now. And then you can say, okay, um, one way to do it, I've done this with some people I've worked with, is to ask what issue do you want to work with? And then ask, how much time can I, permit, can I commit per week? So let's say you say, I do want to really address racism. How much time can I devote a week? Okay. I mean, it's a little bit weird to ask that question. Some people don't have the privilege of saying five hours, right? But uh, let's suppose I say five hours. And then you ask, what's the best way to devote five hours? And try to do it and schedule it. You know, or maybe it's 10 hours. You know, and you could, you know, do anything from activist work to some of the inner work to reading and study and, and so forth. But I think it's good to actually be clear and make a commitment that even can be quantified in terms of hours, because then you'll do it. You know, I, I've had people who who uh, have found that a very helpful guideline. Thanks. Thanks, Judith. Donald, if you'd like one more question, there's one from Alyssa. Good. And Alyssa, you can unmute yourself now. Okay, thank you. Hi. Hi. Um, hi. So sadly, I have a close friend of over 30 years who I recently became aware of is a pretty, pretty severe racist. Yeah. And I just didn't see it before, yeah. you know, for a long time. I, I, I just wasn't, I'm sure it was there, but I just didn't notice it. Now it's all I can notice. Yeah. And um, she's very unconscious about it and um, doesn't see herself that way, but it's pretty obvious. Um, I, it's almost every time I talk to her now, it just shows up. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. And how many can relate to that question? Yeah, I think, I think quite a few. Yeah, it's um, so probably the response. The response that comes to me again would be um, multiple. I'll think again of two main ways to respond. One is to continue to do your own inner work, and as we do that, we can also see that the people didn't ask for the conditioning to be there, right? That it comes when you're very young, right? That you can, you know, that comes very early. So she didn't ask for it to be there. And we can in some ways have some compassion. Uh, so do your own inner work, continue to study that. That's very important. And then there's, you know, how do you work with her? 
moral condemnation is probably not going to go too far, <laughs> right? Uh, and so there's actually, I didn't mention it, but one of my inspirations, there's, um, this is a great resource. This is a, a guy who's African-American actually named David Kempf, who has a book called The White Ally Toolkit Workbook, okay? And he is, uh, that's spelled C-A-M-P-T, he has a website. And what he's particularly interested in, and I did a training with him once, what he's particularly interested in is um, finding ways to have white people talk to friends and family about racism in order to develop a unified anti-racist approach independent from political perspective. That's an important point. And he says the core tool is empathy. There's more in the book and you can look up on his website. But, you know, so we get into the area that we, you know, we have great resources for in Buddhist practice of wise speech. You have to, you know, have to be very skillful in listening and use wise speech, non-judgmental language, especially empathy. Very, very key because there's ultimately, uh, James Baldwin once made, once made this point, beneath hatred is always pain. There's some kind of pain that's underneath, which is driving the racism. And, you know, if one knows that there can be compassion, but also empathic listening. So David Camp had a, a number of great strategies to work with families or friends. He is actively promoting this strategy. And again, the important point is it's not convincing people to become leftist or become liberal. You know, he thinks there can be a very well grounded so-called conservative anti-racism. That's an interesting point. So he's not trying to convince people to change their basic thinking, just to say, uh, to distinguish that thinking from being racist, you know? And um, so that, that's interesting. So I would, I would say, do your own work, work with compassion and empathy and skillful speech, and probably be patient, avoid, uh, yeah, maybe I'm repeating myself, but avoid judgmental language and, and know that there's uh, probably, uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of potential to change. So that, that can be generalized to um, any family member or any friend. Okay, thanks. Good, so I think we're, I think there are no more questions, right, Levi? We're, we're a little bit over time. Is that right, Levi? Yes, it is. That sounds great. Great. So thank you for listening on this, uh, you know, pretty intense and charged territory. I hope, I hope those five perspectives are helpful. They can give some clarity. They're coming. I emphasize today more the wisdom dimension of how to see things. I think next week I'll be a little more practical. I'll, I'll mention the wisdom things, but I'll focus more where I didn't have a, have or make enough time. So my invitation for the next week, 
is to see if you're drawn to explore this territory some. It could be by reading, by talking, looking at some of the sources I mentioned. Let me just invite you now. Where, how might you be interested in following the thread from this morning? What's your intention for the next week if you want to be part of our exploration next week? And so we'll close. Um, let me just say that I uh, next week I'm going to plan to uh, talk uh, significantly less so we have more time for discussion because I think that's a very important area. So I'm going to probably see if I can max my talking about 40 minutes or so. That would be that would be good. So may our practice, both inner and outer, be healing and transformative for ourselves and others, ultimately all others, knowing that we are part of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.